0: Well, good morning. I'm going to welcome all those at our South Hills campus, Robinson, Ross Traver in Washington and Wilkinsburg, those of you joining us online. We appreciate uh, you being here today as we look at God's word. Uh, real quick, before we look at God's Word, we're going to be continuing our study in 1 John. So you can turn there, start turning there. The Revelation and four books back will be 1 John. We encourage you always to bring your Bibles and to, and to study along with us as we look at God's Word. But there's one thing I wanted to talk about before we do that. Uh, last spring, the elders met, and uh, we uh, really wanted to determine where we were as a church and where we were headed. We were not in a crisis situation And uh, we thought it would be a great time from strength to be able to determine uh, our present uh, situation and where uh, we believe God taking us in the future. That led to us bringing in some help, a consultant from Dallas, uh, Brian Audia. And Brian came and did some great work with us. And uh, one of the things he did is we heard from you. Uh, 1,300 of you responded uh, regarding some things that were strengths and some things we could uh, get better on and some things we needed to address. And we've been doing that from that time. Several meetings took place with the elders and executive teams and many of you. And we determined three major goals that we were going after. The first goal is to develop... In Ephesian, Ephesians 4 culture, and here's what that means. We've always talked about Ephesians 4. That's been our philosophy of ministry. Ephesians 4 says God has given certain people gifts to equip the saints for the work of the Lord. That has been the, 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 the philosophy of the Bible Chapel since its inception uh, back in the, in the mid-60s. But we really want to refocus on that. So as a staff, we are saying we want to be those not to do ministry, but to build teams to do ministry and allow people to use their gifts in the way uh, they should be used. And so we are really working hard on that. We've obviously gone through some uh, transitions and uh, some changes, and we're, and we're working hard to do that. We have people working on those goals. The second goal uh, is uh, giving more um, uh, empowerment to our multi-sites. Uh, we have a great multi-sites, we have great campus pastors, some great things are going on, but we want to make sure that it's just not all coming from the South Hills campus, that every campus is its own local church and addressing the needs of the community. And so more empowerment there, we're working on that. And the third one is, in one word, it's called assimilation. Assimilation is getting a person parked in the right spot and plugged all the way to being plugged into ministry. Parking lot to plugged in. And that includes greeters and guides throughout our church. I don't know if you know this, but depending on what door you come in, you're at different floors of our church all the way through. And so if you have kids and you come in and then you try to go register them, it could be 30 minutes before you get back. That's unacceptable. We can't do that. And so that starts in the parking lot to be able to park in the right spot so as a, if you have kids, you can walk right in the door, and that registration is seamless, and then we get you over here, but that's also small groups, living grounded, connected with other people, and then finding your gift and using your gift, so that's part of assimilation. Those are our three goals, those are what we're working on. Obviously, we have some work to do, and uh, we appreciate everyone who has been uh, a part of that, and who are uh, a part of that now as we continue to work on those goals. So thank you uh, for uh, your participation and your continued participation in this. Let's pray and ask God to to, to bless our time as we uh, look at his word. Father, we thank you that, um, that you're God who loves us and you care for us as we have been able th- in our different campuses to sing praises to you today. We thank you that um, that, um, we we can know you in a a personal, intimate way. Father, we also know that there are challenges as we walk through life. Some of those challenges come from inside of us. Some of those challenges uh, hit us from, um, from the outside. And we pray, Father, that you would allow us today as we look at your word, to, uh, to be reminded that we are prepared uh, to do what you have called us to do. You always give us everything we need to do what you're calling us to do. So be with us. Speak to us as only you can do. And, uh, Lord, we pray that we would leave here uh, uh, different, differently than we came. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. John, First John, Chapter Two. We're going to look today at verses eighteen through twenty-seven. Before we do that, quick review of First John, John's first epistle. John is one of the twelve disciples. He's the last living disciple at this point. Uh, the year is around eighty-five to ninety-five A.D. During that time, he wrote five books. He wrote the Gospel of John. He wrote First, Second, and Third John, and then. He was exiled to the Isle of Patmos, and from Patmos he wrote the Revelation. He was released. Another ruler came in, released him back, and he was able to uh, live out the rest of his days in Ephesus. Uh, John was told by Jesus to take care of my mother. Remember, Jesus said that from the cross, and John did that. Church history says he did that till Mary died. That was in Jerusalem, and then he moved to Ephesus. Ephesus was is a huge city. If you've ever seen the ruins of it, a huge city and very modernized for that time. There was there was actually indoor uh, plumbing at that time, way back here in in the in the in the first century. And John goes and he uh, from Ephesus writes a letter, three letters to the surrounding churches. The surrounding churches of Ephesus would be in what is now southwestern Turkey, and we could. Probably most of them would have been the seven churches we read about uh, in the book of Revelation. When John writes, he always writes for a purpose. All the writers do. But John usually tells us the exact purpose. And in John, we have five reasons that he wrote his book. First John, five reasons he wrote this letter to these surrounding churches. One... He said, I want you to know that in Christ you have a sense of belonging. Here's a place you can come with believers. Here's a place you can come and you can can get connected and you can know each other and you have someone to walk through life with you. John uses the word fellowship to talk about belonging. He also talks about helping believers experience true joy regardless of your circumstance. Here's the true joy that you can have. Thirdly, to help believers from falling into patterns of sin. We all are susceptible to that, even as believers. And John warns us and shows us where some of the obstacles are. Four, to guard believers against false teaching. We'll see that today. And five, to allow believers to know beyond any doubt that they are children of God and will forever be. 1 John 5, uh, 13 says this, I write these things to you so you can who believe in the name of the Son of God, so you can know, not wish, not hope, not think, not wait till the end and hope it works out, but you can know right now that you have eternal life. Now, all those five purposes are kind of woven throughout John's writing, and today we come to the purpose that talks about I want to warn you against false teaching. In Ephesus, there, were, there was a lot of false teaching. It's interesting, 30 years prior... Paul had sent Timothy to Ephesus to stay there and teach against the false teachers. And so this has been going on for a long time in Ephesus. Again, it's a wealthy city. It's a modern city. you got a lot of things going on. Think about Ephesus. You have a big city. There's not like one church of Ephesus, but there are many house churches. And many people think that the elders, the leaders in these house churches we're the ones espousing this false teaching. And so John is going to address it. So what I want to do is work our way through First John chapter 2, verses 18-27. to We're going to work our way through that. And then I want to emphasize three things from this passage. All right? Let's start working through it. First, John says, children, it is the last hour. And, and as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming. So now, many antichrists uh, have come, therefore we know that it is the last hour. When John addresses uh, uh, the believers there as children, he is doing a couple things. He's kind of resetting his letter. He's reminding the people, okay, I got something kind of new to tell you here. So he's kind of resetting. He is speaking to believers. He will address the believers as children or little children or beloved, and John is in his 70s or 80s in a time when, uh, when, uh, when most people didn't even live to be 50, and so he's looking at, at himself as kind of the father of the group. So uh, there's an intimacy. Uh, he, he's writing a personal part here, and he dresses them as children. It is the last hour, he says, the last hour. When you look at Scripture and you read the last hour or final hour, it's the period of time. Starts when Jesus came to earth, the incarnation, and then the last hour ends when? When Jesus comes back. So from Acts chapter 1, when Jesus ascended into heaven, we're waiting for him to come back. We're living in the last hour. So all those in the New Testament, all those in the 2nd century, 3rd century, all the way up to today, we are living in the last hour. And you say, well, that's a long time. Maybe he's not coming back. Peter addresses that in Second Peter, chapter three, verse eight, when he says this, "You don't give up on God, it's coming back, because he says that to the Lord one day is as what? A thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. God's timing is not our timing. John says, "It's the last hour. And as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming, and so many many Antichrists have come now. Let's just talk about that. John is the only writer who uses the word Antichrist. He uses it four times. He says there is the Antichrist who is coming. There is going to be one at the end of time, and he is going to stand against god he is going to be the christ counterfeit and he is going to have everyone bowing down before him now in an age of technology we see how that could happen right the antichrist in revelation revelation never mentions the antichrist john calls the antichrist in revelation the beast romans 13 romans or, uh, revelation 13 revelation 17 Paul calls the Antichrist by another name. Anyone know what that is? He calls the Antichrist the man of lawlessness. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, he says this, Man of lawlessness, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. So one day this person, whoever that person is, could be a person in history now, could be 100 years from now, whoever that person is, is going to set himself up against God, going to be a lot of things going on uh, during that time where this person will be the ruler of the world and will have people bowing down before him. That will be the Antichrist. Now through history, there are a lot of people who have supposed who the Antichrist might be. In John's day, you know who people thought it was? Nero, the, the, the emperor of Rome who brought this great persecution against him. In fact, later on in the 5th century, Jerome and Augustine write that there are still people who think that John never died and that he's going to come back and he's going to point to Nero as being the Antichrist. And Nero is somehow going to resurrect from the dead. There was that kind of myth going on. In our day, people thought in World War II, they thought it was Hitler. Or thought it was Mussolini. We, we don't know. The, the point is, we don't know who the Antichrist is. And John is saying, right now, for what we're going to talk about today, it doesn't even matter. You know what I find? I think a lot of people make a hobby out of the end times. And they love to talk about the end times and I love to suppose and all that stuff. But John's saying, don't do that. That's going to happen. Be aware. Be ready. Next time, we're going to talk about the, the second coming and the fact that the way you live your life now, you can stand before God as a believer with confidence or, or, or ashamed. But John says, don't worry about who it is. You got to know right now, today, there are antichrists here. They have come. And an antichrist is someone who opposes Jesus, a false teacher, a false prophet John says, we don't have to figure out who the guy is, who the antichrist is. Antichrists have come. False teachers are here. Therefore, we know it is the last hour. Again, you don't have to speculate. They are right here among us. They are opposing Jesus. And they are opposing the church. And if you're not careful... You're going to start following. You're going to be deceived by them. Now, how do you know if a person is a false teacher? How do you know if a person is a false prophet? How do you know if a person is taking on the spirit of an antichrist? Well, John says in chapter 2, verse 19, they, these antichrists, these false teachers, they went out from us. so, So these were people in the church. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might be plain, they were not of us. What's John saying? There's a group of people in the church. They were false teachers. They got confronted. They left the church and went off on their own. John says that's one of the ways we know they are antichrist. When confronted, they don't repent and get right. They leave. They were with us, but they were not believers. Had they been believers, they would have stayed. But as a demonstration they were not believers, they left. And John says they're still out there, and they're still trying to deceive those in the church. So you've got to stay away from this false teaching. Look at chapter 2, uh, verse 26. I write these things to, uh, to you about those, the Antichrist, who are trying to what? Trying to deceive you. You're a believer, but they know if they can deceive you, they can put you on a lower, they can make you ineffective for what God has called you to do. The antichrists are trying to deceive you. And what are these antichrists teachings? Well, they could be teaching a lot of things. In John's day, one of the major issues was this, John chapter 2, verse 22. Who is the liar, who is the antichrist, but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Who is the antichrist, but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. Here's what John is saying. In the church... In that day and in our day, there are people who deny the full work of Jesus Christ. And they deny that Jesus is God's son, that he is Jesus the Christ or Jesus the Messiah. And by doing so, John says, they are denying both the father and the son, just like many today. Who say you know Jesus is a good teacher? He's a good leader. He's kind of on the line of, of a Gandhi or, or a Buddha. You know, teaching's great. But John says, "You deny Jesus, you deny God." Here's the bottom line: You cannot love God without accepting Jesus as the Messiah. I want to say that again: You cannot love God, whatever religion. Without Jesus. It is only through Jesus that you can have a relationship with God. So someone says, Oh, I love God. I just don't know about Jesus. No, it's a it's a package deal. It is a package deal. You cannot love God without loving Jesus. In John's day, there were a lot of false teachers. And there was one big group that is addressed throughout church history. It's addressed by the church fathers. The church fathers would have been those after uh, uh, John, after the disciples. The next group of church leaders are called the church fathers, Irenaeus, Ignatius, Justin Martyr, those guys. And they're still writing about this thing called Gnosticism. And Gnosticism was this big umbrella thing that denied the, the, the deity of Christ and under Gnosticism, there were several sects. And one sect that was huge in the, in the church in this day was called uh, Doceti- uh, docetism. And docetism said that there was a time when Jesus came, he was man, and then um, uh, the spirit came on him at the baptism, like the dove, right? And then the spirit was with him until he was crucified and then God left him because God could not be crucified on a cross. And that was a big teaching. In fact, that was a teaching throughout the church fathers. And finally, in 325 A.D. at the Council of Nicaea, after after Christianity had become the world religion at that point, finally it was denounced as a heresy. There's a guy named uh, Serenthus who lived around 100 A.D., and he was, he was a, a Gnostic Jewish Christian. And he claimed Jesus was born only a man. And then the spirit came on him for a while and then left him again at the, at the crucifixion. And John will write against these individuals and this sect called docetism. Now, there were others who believed a lot of different things. But John specifically here is saying... There are those who deny that Jesus is the Christ. There are those who deny that Jesus is God. And that's heresy. We, we cannot put up with that. Look at John chapter 2, verse 23. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son, trusts in Jesus, has the Father also. You cannot have, God, you cannot have a relationship with God Without Jesus. Look at chapter uh, 2, verses 22 uh, through 23. This is the gospel of John. Listen to what God, uh, Jesus says in the gospel of John. For the Father judges no one, but has given judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father. Again, I want to drive this home. You cannot have a relationship with God without Jesus, period, the end. Now, why is that? Why why can we make that statement? Why does John make that statement? Gospel of John, chapter 3, verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey or believe or trust or follow Jesus shall not see life. But, check this out, the wrath of God remains on him. Trust in Jesus, you have eternal life. But whoever does not believe in Jesus, the wrath of God remains on him. So let's look at this chart again we've been been talking about. John 3, 36 says, here's the wrath of God. God is a just judge. The penalty of sin is death. As a just judge, he has to do what is right. He has to judge sin. And so the wrath of God is on those who don't trust in Jesus. If a person doesn't trust in Jesus... The wrath of God is on them and will for all always be on them. And we call that finally, Jesus called it hell. Think about that. Eternally experiencing the wrath of God. Can you imagine? Eternally experiencing the wrath of God. And God says, I don't want that to happen. I don't desire that any should perish, but all should come to the knowledge of salvation. And so God sent his son, Jesus. God is still a just judge. He can't go back on his word. His wrath still is on sin. But Jesus came to pay the penalty for our sin. So when we trust in Jesus, God's wrath has been taken on by Jesus himself. That's why you cannot have a relationship with God without Jesus. Muhammad didn't do that. Buddha didn't do that. There's no religious leader that did that. Jesus was fully God, fully man. That's why when you deny the deity of Christ, you're denying the basis of Christianity. God sent his son to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. Jesus, fully God, fully man, took on the wrath for us. Being man, he was our substitute. Being God, he was perfect. He didn't have to die for anyone else's sin. He was sinless, and he took on God's wrath for us. Now, as a believer, we're, we're, we're not perfect. We're going to stand There are going to be ups and downs until we go to heaven. But remember, we've seen John said, Jesus is our what? Our advocate. And when we sin, we have an advocate. We have one who says, I am. Paid for that sin. I paid for that sin. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness because Jesus goes to God and says, You, you, can't, you, can't, put, you, you, you can't punish them for that sin. The penalty of sin has been paid for. For me, they have trusted in me. Now that's, like, that's like, that's just foundational. Does that make sense? That is foundational to our walk with Jesus. So John says, these false teachers are coming in. They are trying to, they are trying to shatter the foundation of our Christian faith. They are denying who Jesus is. And you can't be deceived by that. You can't allow that to happen. And by the way, you don't have to allow it to happen as a believer because God has given you someone to empower you and help you discern the, de- the deception. Who is that someone? John chapter 2, verse 20. But you've been anointed by the Holy One. Who's the Holy One? You guys with me today? <laughs> We're here. Holy Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit who lives in us and resides in us and gives us everything we need to do what we've been called to do. John says, you're not on your own. You have the Holy Spirit living in you and the Holy Spirit has given you. You all knowledge everything you need to know. When John says you're anointed by the Spirit, that's the same thing Paul is saying in First Corinthians chapter twelve, verse thirteen, when he says you have been what? How's Paul said? You've been baptized by the Spirit, right? They're the, that's synonymous. Baptized by the Spirit, First Corinthians twelve thirteen, is the same thing as being anointed by the Spirit. Bottom line is you now have the Spirit. Residing in you. He is with you and will always be with you. Uh, John chapter uh, 2, verse 20 and 21. You've been anointed by the Holy One and you have all knowledge. I write these things to you because you don't know the truth. Not because you don't know the truth, but because you know it and because no lie is in the truth. The Holy Spirit is the one teaching us. Does that mean we should never, ever listen to a teacher? No, it doesn't mean that. Case in point, John's writing this letter. He's teaching them by this letter. But when we have the Holy Spirit living in us, we can, if we're reading God's Word, written by the Spirit, the Spirit lives in us, so when we read God's Word, the Spirit helps us understand it, still study it, still learn from others, But when we have God's word hidden in us, it's the spirit who helps us discern a lie from the truth. You have the spirit of truth living in you. The spirit of truth. You don't have to be deceived by a lie. John is saying they're out there. People are trying to stumble you, trip you up. They want to make you stumble. You don't have to do that. Because you have the Holy Spirit living in you. Skip down to verse 27. By the anointing you have received from him, but the anointing you have received from him abides in you. The Holy Spirit resides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you. Again, John's not saying no teachers, but you have the Holy Spirit who's your primary teacher. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie... Just as it has taught you, abide in him. So John's saying you have the Holy Spirit living in you. He's going to help you discern truth from a lie. You still have to study. You still have to be taught. You still have to grow in your relationship. But you have the Holy Spirit there who's going to help you say, you know what? That teaching, ah, that just doesn't seem right. I have a a Holy Spirit filter that allows me to say, you know what? I'm just not... Sure, that teaching is right. When we are walking with God, when we are abiding with him, when the Holy Spirit resides in us, that's the promise that we have, the spirit of truth. I won't take time to read these, but jot down John 14, 16-18. John 14, 26. John 16, 13. Uh, John takes the words of Jesus and this is first John like a commentary on the words of Jesus and Jesus is saying the holy spirit of truth is going to come. He's going to be with you. He's going to be in you. You have the holy spirit with you. And here's the truth that John drills down on. Look at verse uh, 23 through 25. No one denies the son who has the father. If you have the father, you're not going to deny the son. No one who denies the son has the father. You don't have the father. You can't have a relationship with God without the son. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Next verse. Let what you heard from the beginning. This is important. Let what you heard from the beginning. The gospel of Jesus Christ. You have heard about it. You have accepted it. I was there, John says. Remember how he started his book? I saw Jesus. I touched Jesus. I heard Jesus. I was with Jesus. I'm telling you what Jesus said. The things you heard from the beginning, don't, don't start believing something different. Don't start believing something new. Go back to the gospel. You heard from the beginning those things. It abides in you. And what you heard from the beginning abides in you. If what you heard from the beginning stays with you, then you too will abide in the Son and the Son and the Father. You will remain. You will keep walking with Christ. One more verse, and then then we're going to three points. And here's the promise. Here's the truth that God has made for us. He has given us eternal life. And that life is in his son. All right. Three things this verse emphasizes. Here's the first one. John says in John 1 John 2:15 through 17 the uh, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eye, the pride of life. There are things within us that are going to be tempting. Now, he says, those things are going to be tempting. You've got to deal with those, but there are people who are going to try to deceive you. There are people who are going to try to cause you to to believe what's not true. Don't fall for false teaching. Now, in order not to fall for false teaching, then what do, you, what do you have to know? You've got to know the truth. You've got to be grounded. In order to, to see a counterfeit, you've got to know what the real thing looks like. Do you know that? Tim Chalice, uh, is a, I encourage you to go. Uh, you can Google Tim Chalice false teaching. He does some great stuff on that. He has some blogs and some uh, YouTube stuff. But he has seven signs or seven types Of a false teacher. We're we're gonna talk about this more later on, but I just wanna introduce this today. This is from Tim Chalice Seven Types of a False Teacher. Here's the first one the heretic. The heretic, if you're taking notes, this is on the back. The heretic contradicts essential teaching of the Christian faith. It may be about Jesus. It may be about the Holy Spirit. It may be about God himself. It may be about the Trinity. It may be about salvation. Salvation by works is a heresy. It's a heresy. You can't call it anything else. It may be about a lot of different things, but the heretic says, I'm going to take the truth and I'm going to twist it. Jude, chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, says, Beloved, though I was eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once delivered for all uh, uh, once for all delivered to the saints i wanted to write to you about some other stuff but i am appealing to you to make sure you don't you're not deceived by someone who is teaching something false so the heretic teaches something false the next person <clears throat> false teacher is the charlatan the charlatan is in it for the money Do you think there are some people out there today in the Christian circles who are in it for the money? False teachers. I'm not naming names because if I do, I'd have to name more names next week. But you just, we have to know as Christians, if someone's in it for the money, as Simon Magnus was in Acts 8. Remember Simon Magnus in Acts 8? He was so amazed by this new thing called Christianity and the power of the Spirit, he was trying to buy The Holy Spirit, he was offering the the, the disciples money for the Holy Spirit. Paul says that godliness, many fall because they believe godliness is a means of gain. And look around us. It's a joke. Go look at the Christian bookstore, not our Christian bookstore. We wouldn't do that. But go to the Christian bookstore, and you look at the top sellers, and I got to tell you, five of the top ten are heretics, and we're buying the books, and we're reading the stuff, charlatans, heretics. Number three, the prophet. The prophet is a person who claims to speak fresh revelation. And it's not in here, but God gave me this new word of revelation. When someone says that, turn it off. Or walk away. This is the revelation of God right here. You add to it, you take away from it, you're in trouble. And we're in trouble if we follow that person. The next one, the abuser uses position to take advantage of people. There are two churches in Chicago, mega churches, that their pastors just got fired because of abuse. What's that say about about us? We can't follow those who are going to abuse people. The divider. Use false doctrine to disrupt or destroy a church. Many churches have been divided by someone who comes in and starts teaching false doctrine. The next one, the tickler. Teaches only the parts of the Bible that are acceptable. uh, 2 Timothy says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will, for them, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. That is going on all over the place. Pastors only teaching the things that are inspiring, the things that are, that, that, that are encouraging, the things that they want to teach. That's why you've got to be careful with churches that only do topical sermons. Now, we do some topical uh, expositional sermons, but we like to teach through a book. Why do we like to teach their book? Because when you teach teaching through a book, you can't pick and choose what's next. I start studying on Tuesday, and I say, oh, my goodness, what am I going to do with this passage? But you know what? It's the next passage. It's not going to be the most encouraging sermon anyone's heard but it's the next part of the letter. But if you're just picking and choosing, then you get to tell all the stories you want to tell, and you get to tell um, uh, all the encouraging stuff, and they're, they're packing out auditoriums with that stuff. The speculator, obsessed with presenting novelty, originality, and speculation. Listen to this. Theology has been around for a long time. A new teaching... Is an old heresy. I want to say that again. Someone comes and says, Here's a brand new teaching, time out. That is an old heresy. Remember what John tells the people? Don't forget what you heard from the beginning. Stick with the gospel. Stick with the gospel. We can be creative in our worship, we can be creative in presentation. But you can't change God's word. It's what's been there from the beginning, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen to what Chalice says. Satan's greatest ambassadors are not pimps, politicians, or power brokers, but pastors. His priests do not peddle a different religion, but a deadly perversion of the true one. His troops do not make a full out frontal assault, but work as agents sneaking into the opposing army. Satan's tactics are studied, clever, predictable, effective. Therefore, we must always remain vigilant. Here's what Jesus said. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. And that's what John is telling the people in in Ephesus. Wake up. Don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. They're in the church. It's 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 not the people who totally oppose Jesus that John's most worried about. It's those who are bringing this teaching into the church and trying to deceive. That's the first thing I want to emphasize. Here's the second thing. Be wise and discerning. Be wise and discerning. The Heavenly Father loves you so much, He sent His Son to die for you on the cross. Jesus loves you so much that He went to the cross for you. And then you know what God did? He sent His Holy Spirit to live in you, to empower you, to give you everything you need to do what He's calling you to do. Be wise and discerning. God's at work in us through his spirit. Now, that doesn't mean that we're going to learn Scripture by osmosis just by putting it under our pillow at night. We still have to study. And by the way, parents, what are you teaching your kids? Do you know the foundations of the faith well enough to teach them to your kids? No, that's your job at the church. That's baloney, and you know it. We got them for Wednesday night for an hour and a half and maybe an hour on Sunday. And you got them all week. Parents, the ball's in your court. Teach your children well. And you can't impart what you don't possess. So be wise and discerning and study God's word. We have a class, Living Grounded, drilling down on the essentials of the Christian faith. Have you taken that? Have you done that? You got to be those who teach your kids. Last one. True believers persevere. True believers persevere. There's a doctrine called perseverance of the saints. You heard that? True believers persevere. It's another name for eternal security. Because of eternal security we have assurance of our salvation. That's why John can say you can know without any doubt you are a child of God. They went out from us because they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that they might become plain that they were not of us. What's John saying? They didn't persevere. They didn't persevere. Now, John is not saying that as believers it's up to us to just slug it out. On our own. John tells us the doctrine of perseverance says that God lives in us, and it's not us who, who, who is persevering, but God is preserving us. He is with us. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. I'm sure of this, that he who began, God began the good work in you, He's going to bring it to completion. He will preserve you. That gives us the confidence, doesn't it? It's not us persevering, slugging it out. It's God preserving us, keeping us in the game. We're a child of God. He's never going to let us go. John uh, 2.25 says, this is the promise that God gives us. We have eternal life. So what's John saying in this passage? I'm going to come down here and finish up so the worship team, we're going to pass this off to the campuses, the worship teams can come out, the worship team can come out and lead us in our last song. But let's think about what John is saying. John is saying that there are many who come to church because they're enamored by something in the church. Maybe they like the youth group for their kids and so they come, but they never trust in Christ. Maybe um, It's for business purposes. Hey, let's just face it. There have been people come to church because of business reasons, networking. I've seen many politicians come to church right around election time, haven't you? With their buttons on. Why are they here? To worship, right? I don't know their heart. There are many people who come to church for reasons other than Jesus. That's what John's warning us of. There was a guy, a leader um, at a, a, of a college a ways away, and, and um, had some interaction with him. He was, a, he was president of a college. I had some interaction with him. And I, knew, I, I was talking to a guy who knew him, who worked with him, and I said, is he a believer? And you know what the guy said? Oh, ugh, I don't know. He said, He's a good churchman. The difference? He goes to church, but there's not the fruit of really following Jesus. And so John is saying, Man, we got to be smart. We got to be discerning. We got battles going on within us, and we got people trying to deceive us from the outside. And we have to be those who know the truth so that we can discern error. And John said, ball's in your court. That's the warning. That's the challenge. Ball's in your court. What are you going to do to make certain that you can, by the power of the Holy Spirit, discern error when it's standing right in front of you and not by a lie? Father, that's a a great challenge for us in our day when from our phone to our computer we can get any teaching there ever was. We can get people who, who are tremendous orators but spew out lies. Lord, don't let us buy into a lie. Keep us discerning. Keep us discerning. And help us, Father, to know what we believe and why we believe it and pass that on to the next generation. Lord, that's our prayer in Christ's name. Amen.